ask him to have his way tonight. Lord, we're grateful and honored to have this opportunity, but I am not the speaker. You are. Let only your words come out tonight. Nothing more, nothing less. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you're glad to be in church, let's lift our hands right now and just thank God for that. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Well, everything has history. Everything. You have history. This building has history. Um, this microphone has history. If there's a box of Kleenexes around, it has history. Everything does. But there's one thing that has history that sometimes we forget about, and that's words. Words have history. Um, and some words have a very interesting history. Now, if you study words, you're a philologist or an etymologist. If you're like me, you probably own a couple of etymology dictionaries. And you sit there and you read and you're fascinated with the history of words. But I've discovered there are some words that make the experts scratch their head. And they wonder, just how old is this word? And one word we're going to talk about tonight. And that word is wine. W-I-N-E. Now some of you know about wine. Some of you may know about wine a little more intimately than the rest of us. Because some of you might have uh, indulged in its pleasures sometime in the past. But what they've discovered is this word has been around for a long time. Now, it's part of the Indo-European language. From the Indo-European language comes over 4,000 languages. And you speak one of them if you speak English. Here's just a few that come from there. Spanish, English, Hindi, Russian, German, Italian. All of these come from Indo-European languages. These languages go back to roughly 4,000 or more B.C. The Indo-European language goes back that far before the time of Christ walking this planet. And if you go beyond the Indo-European language, you go into Proto-Indo-European. So if you have a dictionary, just a common dictionary that's a good one, and all of a sudden you see the word pie in a definition, that doesn't mean, hey, how about some pie? That means this is Proto-Indo-European. This word we know is older than the Indo-European, but that's all we can tell you. Well, guess what word is? Wine. This is what they've discovered. The word wine pretty much means, in the earliest, earliest language, the twisty drink. Now, why does it mean twisty drink? Because it came from the twisty fruit. Way, way back, they were very simple in their speech. And they didn't cloud it with all the verbiage that we do today. Now, there's a point going to be made here shortly. And it was called the twisty drink because it came from the twisty vine. Because if you've ever seen a grapevine, it twists. And I just listened to a guy give a lecture who has been studying this one word for 15 years. And he's flabbergasted and can't stand it that he can't figure out where it came from. But let me tell you what certain dictionaries say. There's a dictionary called The Origin of English Words, written by Joseph Shipley. And when I took it out the other day and looked at the Indo-European word that wine came from, it said, this right here is the first taste. 
of wine. But it's lost in the mist of prehistory. When he said prehistory, he got my attention. And according to the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, Volume 5, it says the vine is one of the oldest of cultivated plants dating back to prehistoric times. Now, why do I like that term prehistory? It's because every scholar, whether they're a believer or not, when they look at the first 11 chapters of Genesis, they say that's prehistoric. It's not written like normal history. It's not documented like everything is from Abraham on. It's hard to study it. And do you know what really spooks them? God is so stinking active in those first 11 chapters. They call it mythic. They say it's part real, part not real. But let me tell you what happens in those prehistoric times. If you crack your Bible open to Genesis chapter 9 and verse 20, and Noah began to be a husbandman, and he planted a vineyard. And he drank of the wine and was drunken, and he was uncovered within his tent. According to scholars that know the language of the Bible better than any of us ever will in this room, they said when the Bible says Noah began, this is what the Bible means. This is the first time a vineyard was ever grown, and this is the first time wine was ever drank. Therefore, the reason why Noah got drunk, if this is true, he had no idea he would get drunk. No idea. That this would happen because he grew these grapes and realized you can drink them. And apparently it got to tasting really good. And it got so good, he started getting tipsy. Now history tells us that there are certain wines that no longer exist. There was one particular wine that the Romans talked about. It's called Flanarian wine. And it was so potent you could light it on fire. That's how they would figure out if it was the real deal. It would light up on fire. And they said this wine came straight from the mountain from the gods. We no longer have even the type of grapes that that wine was made from. And when you get into the land of Canaan, which is just a few centuries from Noah, they're packing fruit out of there that takes two men to carry. If you think you've had some sweet, potent grapes today... They really, 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 really had some back then. So what does the word wine tell us? I believe God has managed to keep that word written almost the same for thousands of years, almost pronounced the same for thousands of years in lands and cultures that could not even grow it, but somehow know they got their hands on it because God wanted them to know what happened in the prehistory of Genesis is a fact, Jack. Wine came right after Noah got off of that ark. And it's God disguising the truth of the Word of God in the very language that we speak every day. Ladies and gentlemen, I come to tell you tonight this. You can take it to the bank. If the Bible said it, it's true. They try to tell us it's not, but I'm telling you that it is. Well, all right, Brother Corsi, he got drunk, and then his sons come in and made fun of him, and he cursed them. That 
sounds horrible. Well, it does. But let me tell you something. It's a different time. There was a day and age where you didn't look on nobody naked except who you were married to. You didn't even look on your parents' nudity. You only looked on the ones that you were married to. And Herodotus, who is the very first technical historian that is recognized pretty much, who wrote about history again before the time of Christ. He writes about a certain lady who was saw naked. And I promised my wife I wouldn't tell the story because there's kids here. So this lady gets seen naked. And when she finds out about it, she calls a council and says, They have to die. And the person that saw her nudity was killed. Herodotus goes on to say this in his writings. Also among most other barbarians, it is a shame even for a man to be seen naked. Now when you think of barbarians today, you can't help but think about the late swollen Arnold Schwarzenegger who walked around in a loincloth carrying a big sword. But that's not historically accurate. Herodotus says even barbarians kept their nakedness covered. Therefore, whenever Noah found out that his son saw him naked, probably drunk for the very first time in his life, and began to mock and scoff him and didn't cover him, he became a curse. But Noah had every right to say, kill the boy on the spot. He showed him mercy. Ladies and gentlemen, the world has changed a lot. But in the days of the Bible, there was an ethic and a morality that you lived by and you died by what does all of this show us it shows us this the bible is true even herodotus says barbarians had laws to where if you saw them naked you were dead now think about that today we show nudity to sell shoes that woman would have been killed And everybody that looked at her killed in the days of Genesis. That's harsh. That's harsh. That's harsh. Ladies and gentlemen, how hard is it today to keep your children's eyes and ears tuned in to what they need to be tuned into? More on that in a moment. This is what the historian, uh, historian of, of the Greek tells us. But then I'm reading this book not long ago that deals with how the flood's been interpreted throughout the years. And it's written by a professor from a different country who don't believe in it. He doesn't believe in it. But yet he staggered that in our world right now, there are over 250 flood myths. The Native Americans that inhabited this country before any white man ever came had a flood story. The people that lived in Hawaii, missionaries have recorded this. They were blown away. They said, when we showed up, we didn't have to tell them about the flood. They already knew. Some of the names were different. Some of the descriptions was different. But yet they had a story where the world was wiped out by a flood. But this one professor says the unique thing about the Bible is this. When you read it in the Bible, it doesn't sound like a myth. It sounds like a historical fact. He said, and every time I read it in the Bible, something tells me this is important. Something happened here. You need to pay attention. I wish I could meet that professor and say it was one of the most important events that ever happened on the earth because it's a type and shadow of what is yet to come because even Jesus himself said... 
as it was in the days of Noah. Why do I believe in Noah more than anything? Because my God who robed himself in flesh and walked on this earth called him by name and said as it was in the days of Noah. Well, it's a myth. It's a story. If you're a judge and you're in a courtroom and they bring you over 250 accounts that a flood took place, don't you think the judge is going to lean over that bench and scratch his head and say, maybe there's something to it. But it gets even better. The godfather of philosophy, Plato, who the Catholics need to think because he drew out a diagram for the Trinity and helped them put that together long before Christ ever was around. Plato already had a Trinity in his cosmology and the Catholics took it and reworked it and made their Trinity with it. That's my opinion. Plato, in his laws, writings of the laws, laws book three, they're debating on where law even came from. How did we get law? How is it people started coming together, living together, and making laws? And one guy speaks up and says, well, it's like it was during the time of the deluge. That's how it's translated in my copy. The deluge, another word for a flood. And all the people, it gets better, and all the people lived up on the mountain when they could get out of the boat. He says they started working their way down and creating laws. Do you realize one of the first real big laws that was ever given was given to Noah? It's okay to eat animals, but it's not okay to kill people. God starts working this out with Noah as he's coming down the mountain. Almost like a type and shadow of what's going to happen when Moses goes up and comes down a mountain. And this is what is said in Plato. Plato says it was after the deluge. When people got together and started multiplying and started living together, that's when these laws started springing up. Plato is before Christ. And they're talking about a flood. Scholars debate this. They say, oh, no, 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 that may not be that flood. One therapist says that every time they write about a flood, it's because at night when they were asleep, their bladder was full. I kid you not. That's what a Freudian said. Sounds like a Freudian, don't it? Is that a cigar in your mouth? <laughs> but Plato also says this. Plato says when Salon came and started ruling Athens... 600 B.C., 600 years before Christ. Salon was in Egypt for a long time. He comes and starts ruling Athens, and he mentions, and right here's where we all find out about the city, Plato. Salon starts talking about Atlantis. Raise your hand if you've heard of Atlantis. Sure you have. And do you know what Plato says? He says Atlantis was destroyed nine times thousand years before Salon came. Salon came at around 600 B.C. So Salon is saying Atlantis existed and was destroyed 9,000 years before he came to Athens. Put a pin in that. Now everybody says that the people of the Bible ripped off Mesopotamia and stole their flood story. 
It's from the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is a cool story. I've got it. You should read it. It's cool. Are there some parallels? There's some scary parallels. But it don't discourage me. It's like, it's true. That's why there's parallels. It's true. And we look back at Egypt and Babylon and say those are ancient civilizations. Gilgamesh brings up the name of a city. I don't know how to pronounce it. Brings up the name of a city. Talks about how it's ancient. And you can barely find any remains of it in his day. The Epic of Gilgamesh was written probably 4,000 B.C. or more. You can't find it. And if you ask Gilgamesh, why can you not find it? A flood. And if you study the Sumerian kings list, they will take you right to the king that was there when the flood happened. And Gilgamesh seeks out a character who is not named Noah, but is their Noah. And he wants to know how you survived the flood. And how have you lived so long after it? Anybody know how long Noah lived after? 300 or more years. We're getting material. Now, when I lived in Montana, my job sometimes took me to the public schools. And I walked up and down the hall because it was COVID. Teachers were having to teach on laptops. And I would hear one week, I heard five, four or five teachers reading the Epic of Gilgamesh to their students. And they were all saying the same thing. Yeah, it's a cool story, just like the story of the Bible, but it wasn't real. And I wanted to run in there and smack every one of them. Because if you had that much evidence on me that I murdered somebody, my sorry hide's going to jail. If you had over 250 witnesses coming in saying he did it, he did it, he did it, they may not agree on every little element because if they did agree on every little element, somebody would say they copied each other. They may not agree on every little element, but the judge would say guilty. Ladies and gentlemen, the flood has been found guilty. I believe that it happened. I believe that God did destroy the world with water. And I believe if he did it with water, then just like he said with fire, it's going to happen. Somebody needs to hear me tonight. If you're not ready, you better be getting ready. He's fixed it to where it is so, so hard to escape. What the Bible says. And I listened to this professor who spent his whole life looking at that one word, wine. And he says, I know it's old. And I know it's prehistoric. But I don't know where it came from. And you're never going to find it because anything, they didn't use papers and stuff back then. You're probably never going to find that original first time wine was ever wrote. You're probably never going to find that first language that was ever, ever spoken. You're never, never, ever going to find that. But we have these clues. The word looks the same, almost sounds the same in every language. And people were saying it who lived in areas that couldn't even grow a grape. But they came in contact with it. When did it begin? It began in the book of Genesis. Am I endorsing drinking? Of course not. But this is what I'm telling you. If the Bible says it, it is true. Now, here's the fascinating thing. They will not accept the flood. But last week, I listened to a smart man say something. And it was late at night. It was like 12, 1 o'clock in the morning. My wife was asleep because I could hear the effects of sleeping coming out of her mouth. And I almost jumped out of bed 
and, and, and did me a shout. Because I'm like, if he can accept that, why can't he accept the flood? I do like Norse mythology. I'm not going to lie. I don't endorse what the Vikings did. They were mean and cruel people. But I like their mythology. It's just real. It's full of toxic masculinity. you got to love it. And right before Ragnarok takes place, which is their Armageddon, and all their gods die. There's no hope in their religion. Odin, Thor, they all get killed. They all die. So there's a thing going to happen called Fimble Winter. And here's how they describe Fimble Winter. The earth is, the whole earth is covered in snow. You can't grow nothing. Animals die. You can't hunt. You, gotta, you basically got to eat each other if you're hungry. And huge portions of the population die. So here I am listening to Tom Shippey. He's taught at Harvard. He's taught at Cambridge. He knew J.R.R. Tolkien. He took J.A.R. Tolkien's place at, at the, where he taught. This is a bright man. He's a scholar. He's a medievalist. He's, he knows everything about Anglo-Saxons. He's a bright man. And he's talking about something, and so I'm listening to him. And all of a sudden, he brings up Fimblewinter. And he says, listen, guys, this is based on something that really happened. And I'm sitting there thinking, the world covered in snow? He said it all happened in 535 or 536 A.D., closer to Christ than us. A volcano went off. And for three years, the sun barely shone one day. And he said, if you go to China and read their documents, it snowed in the winter. And if you go north where the Anglo-Saxons and the Vikings and the Germanic people was, they dealt with snow for almost three years. He said, they've done core samples on trees, and you can see where the cold and the frost got into the tree and messed the tree up. He said, graves, nobody's being buried. No money is being made. Listen to this. He said, we can prove they, they stopped making money. They stopped burying people. He goes, and I'll tell you why they stopped burying people. They were probably eating them. He said, and then when they did bury them, we find these huge holes with dead, just full of dead people. He says, civilization stopped for three years. And they think they've even figured out one or two volcanoes that went off during that time. And the volcanoes messed up the atmosphere. You don't need a gas-powered engine to mess up the earth. But um, boom A volcano can do it for you. He said it took them probably 10 or more years to go back to normal. He said there's a gap in records. There's a gap in everything. He said then all of a sudden in about 10 or 15 years down the road, you start finding archaeological evidence of money being made again. They're estimating that it wiped off maybe not half the earth's population, but close. Some studies, depending on who you read. He said, now, in the early 1000s, they start writing about Ragnarok, and Fimblewinter appears. He says, we believe it's because of the history of 536. And I'm sitting there thinking, well, Professor Ding Dong, if you can say Fimblewinter happened based upon that, why can't you say the flood's real? I'll tell you why they can't say the flood's real. Because that means you got to go to Genesis chapter 6 and believe that a conversation happened between a man named Noah and a one true God. 
And that's what they don't want. They don't want a God that gives us a code to live by. They don't want a God that tells us how to live and how to be. But ladies and gentlemen, I'm here to tell you something. If what little bit of evidence they got about Fimble Winter is true, we've got even more that the flood happened. And how much more should we believe that one day the sky is going to part and He that ascended is going to descend again and take us home? Well, of course, yeah, I have trouble. I just, I just, I, just, I, I don't know. You know, you know the, the way the world is anymore. The way the world is, it's it just, it's just, it's hard to stand up and say that you can believe those things. I mean, I don't mind standing up and saying that I believe certain things in the Bible, but I don't know if I want to go all the way back to Genesis and say, yeah, I believe that. I came across this. I got to read it to you. Everybody knows J.R.R. Tolkien. He wrote Lord of the Rings, The Hobbit, and all that. His profession was a philologist. This guy was super smart. You know why he wrote those stories? He invented a language. While he's in World War II in the trenches, he invents a language. And he goes, what am I going to do with this language? I know. I will write a huge mythology to use my language in. Two quotes. These are in letters that he wrote. I think most Christians have been rather bustled and hustled now for some generations by the self-styled scientists. And they've sort of tucked Genesis into a lumber room of their mind as not very fashionable furniture. A bit ashamed to have it about the house. A little bit ashamed to say, yeah, I believe in this because, you know, science has told us it's baloney. I do not now feel either ashamed or dubious on the Eden myth as they call it. It has not, of course, historicity of the same kind as the New Testament, which are virtually contemporary documents. While Genesis is separated uh, by uh, we do not know how many uh, sad exiled generations from the fall, but certainly there was an Eden on this very unhappy earth. Tolkien said that through his studies of myth and through his studies of what history says, he was a firm believer that from Genesis chapter 1 to the very end of the book of Revelation, he said it's true. This is a guy that helped write the Oxford Dictionary. This is a guy that helped interpret certain books that are in certain Bibles. He said, I believe it's true. And in another letter, this is what he wrote. He said, I also believe that there will be 1,000 years on this earth where we, the believers in Jesus, will rule and reign and have victory on this earth. Ladies and gentlemen, not all those eggheads out there are against us. There's a lot of people that have found enough evidence and documents that they believe without a shadow of a doubt this is that. And that's why I want to encourage you as people that come to church every day. This is more than just stories. This is more than just an ism and a schism. This is the real deal. This is a fact. You can take it to the bank. This is real. But Brother Corsi, you really, truly, truly, truly believe it? I do. But here's where my mind gets blown Jesus brings up Noah, and he brings up Lot. And he doesn't do it any way like we do. I mean, you've got all that going on in Genesis, and this is all Jesus says. They were eating, drinking, and giving in marriage. He brings up Lot. They were eating, drinking, giving in marriage. 
If this theory is right, they were not drinking wine. That didn't come to after. Could have been drinking beer. That's been around a long time. But this is not supposed to be the history of alcohol. I believe what they were doing is they were living as if there is no God. They were living as if, so I die, I die. Because Ecclesiastes gives us a peek into a nihilist or an atheist mindset. And it says, hey, let's just eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. So what were they doing? They were just too busy living. Jesus didn't even talk about the stuff we like to talk about. Jesus skipped over that hardcore stuff. He just said all they were concerned about was eating, drinking, giving in marriage, and living their life. You do not have to be a super horrible person to miss the trumpet sound. You do not have to be some debaucherous evil person who goes down every night into a basement and does God knows what on a computer to miss the trumpet. All you got to do is get up and say, hello, Marge. Hello, Frank. I'm going to go get an Egg McMuffin. I'm going to go have a nice meal later. I'm going to marry my sweetheart. And then just forget God and you will miss the trumpet when it sounds. This is the mindset we got. You got to do evil, evil, evil to get to hell. The most evilest thing that any of us glorified mudballs can do is live like we do not have a creator. The evilest thing that we glorified mudballs can do is live like what happened at Calvary meant nothing. The evilest thing that we can do is to live like we are in charge of our own lives. Hear the word of God. All souls belong to Him. And the soul that sinneth shall surely die. We're living in a world right now where everybody says, I'm okay, you're okay. Well, this preacher's got to stand up and tell you, without the shed blood of Christ applied to your life, none of us are okay. We are not baptizing people because we think your deodorant has quit working. We're baptizing you because your soul needs to be saved. We're not up here preaching trying to look smart and eloquent. We're preaching because He's coming back and you need to be saved. That's what Jesus was saying. Well, at least I'm not like them uh, sons of God who saw the daughters of men. You don't have to be. Just eat, drink, and be merry. Well, at least I'm not like them dudes in Sodom and hunting for a Steve. I found me an Eve. You don't have to be. Just eat, drink, and be merry. And forget him. Gilgamesh has a buddy and his buddy, he thought, would never die. And his buddy died. And now Gilgamesh is afraid of death. So you know who he seeks out? He seeks out their character that would be Noah. Maybe this happened. Maybe it didn't. Gilgamesh finds him. and says, you've lived for so long. How, how, how do you do it? Because according to the, to the Gilgamesh myth... They believe that their Noah would never die. That he was a super duper blessed dude. How do you, how do, you do it? I, I don't want to, 
I don't want to die. And this is weird. When you read it, it's weird. But when you think about it, it's, it's kind of cool. There Noah tells him, says, okay, I don't want you to go to sleep. Stay awake. I think he tells him six days. Do not go to sleep. Guess what Gilgamesh has the hardest time trying to do? Stay awake. Because we all want to go to sleep. The point is, if you can't stay awake without sleeping, how are you going to live forever? There's this parable that Christ gives us about these five wise and five foolish virgins. It's a cool parable. But one day, it hit me. Jesus said, they all slept. Those five wise were not up all night going, they slept. They all slept. But when the bridegroom came, five slept ready, five didn't. I think that sleep there is a metaphor for just living life. We all got to live our life. You got to provide. You got to raise your kids. You are going to have to eat and drink. You are going to get married. But you better do that prepared. And that's why the old man tells Gilgamesh, Try not to sleep. Some of us think we're going to come to church and we're going to get the Holy Ghost and God's going to fix everything and all of our debts are going to get paid and all of our problems are going to get solved and all of our kids are going to get great grades and be perfect little angels. It's not guaranteed to work that way. But here's the catch. He's going to save your soul. He's going to give you joy unspeakable, full of glory. He is going to give you a touch that will change your life. And even though you still got to raise kids that sometimes are going to sass and backtalk and even though you still got to work for the man to make a living and even though some Sometimes you're going to be sick and sometimes you're going to be healthy. you got to go through all of that ready and prepared to meet God. And this is where we are failing. None of you out there are failing because you're closet homosexuals. None of you out there are failing because you're hooked to pornography, I hope. None of you out there are failing because you're crazy, crazy, deadhead drunks. Most of you are just failing because on Sunday morning you hit the snooze and you're like, You come to church and we're up here like cheerleaders saying, worship the Lord, people. Get them hands up. And you're like, oh, I'm here. Can you imagine on your honeymoon? I'm a man, so I'm not going to pretend to be a woman. I, you crawl in that bed with your wife. She rolls over and goes, I love you. And you're like, I'm here. Now leave me alone. I said I do. Huh? What would you do if every day your spouse woke you up, breakfast in bed? I love you, honey. I'm here. I haven't cheated on you. Leave me alone. This is the attitude we have when we come to church. I'm here. I'm here. I got that Facebook playing while I'm in the background playing my games. I'm here. I'm here. No, you're not. 
You're not present. And this is what Jesus was saying. They were eating and drinking and giving in marriage. While they're standing in the temple, they're thinking about their kid's wedding. While they're standing in the temple, will God bless me if I give three shekels this week instead of two? While they're standing in the temple, they're worried about an ox in a ditch. You need to forget that. And you need to say, this is the day that the Lord hath made. I will, I will, I will rejoice and be glad in it. I will. You ask some people, hey, are you a Christian? And first they give you the look. I used to go in people's homes. And I don't know. I don't know if it's because of a walk, a smell, a tone, or whatever. I've had so many people go, you a preacher? And sometimes I try to look at my thing. You know, if I say yes, they're probably going to argue about something. Are you? Are you? We're all like Peter in a way. Aren't you one of them? Well, I mean, I, I go there. Occasionally. You know, they're good people. But then you bring up something. Yeah, but don't they believe this? I know. I know. We're working on it. Really? This is what Jesus said. All they're concerned about is eating, drinking, giving in marriage. They want a smooth life. They want a happy life. They don't want anybody to upset the apple cart. And if that kept all those people outside the ark, if that's God's analysis of what was really keeping them outside the ark, ladies and gentlemen, if this rapture thing is as true as I believe it is, what's going to keep a lot of people missing that? I don't want to miss it. And when we stand before God and say, well, I, I just don't think, I just don't think I had, you know, plenty of opportunities. It's in your dictionaries. If every Bible was destroyed, it has been said you could go to an average library. I don't know what an average library is. But you go to the average library and just start going through all the books and you would find every verse in the Bible has been quoted and put in a book at some time. This is still the most popular book out there. And I'm telling you, it's real. It's real. Let's stand. When I listen to a professor say, wine has existed for such a long time. It's prehistoric. But I just don't know where it came from. I already have my Bible open, and I'm, I'm reading it to his image on the monitor. That's where it came from. But they don't want to accept it. I want to ask you, are you willing to accept it? Well, I accepted it 35.378 years ago. And I've been in the church ever since. Bless his holy name. Well, that's great. God bless you. But are you just going through the motions? Or have you really, truly accepted it? Well, preacher, this isn't exactly what we wanted to hear tonight. Well, this is exactly what God has laid on my heart. What kept them out of the ark? Oh, they did bad things. Don't get me wrong. But what led to those bad things? They just wanted to be happy. Eat, drink, and be merry. 
I'm going to pray. This altar's open. All you got to do is come. If you believe that, if you've been having doubts about the Bible, you need to get down here and pray through and say, Lord, help me. Help me to get into that book and believe it more now than ever, 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 ever before. Heavenly Father, I've said all I know to say tonight. I lay it at your feet. I believe. Lord, I believe. No matter how outrageous, no matter how crazy some of the things in that book sound, Lord, I believe. And Lord, I want to live my life according to that book. And I want to take